Hey guys, welcome back to A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. This is a five-week mini-series. This is week three of that series. If you are just jumping in, highly recommend that you go back and listen to the first two episodes before jumping into today's episode. Just want to give you a couple quick announcements here before we dive in. The first thing is, if you want to get a hold of Chris, if you have any other questions for him regarding the things that you're hearing in the series, you can reach out to him by just emailing chris at dadtire.com. He's happy to point you in the right direction towards books and other resources to help equip you to become a spiritual leader of your home, specifically in the area of apologetics. Also want to let you know that Chris is going to be speaking at our first ever Dad Tired men's retreat in September in Arkansas, September 16th through 18th. So if you want to be involved in that, you want to meet other Dad Tired guys and hear more from Chris and be encouraged as a husband, father, disciple, you can sign up for that by going to dadtire.com forward slash retreat. That being said, let's dive in to week three. Today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite arguments for God's existence, which is the argument from design. If you want to use a big fancy word, it's called teleology or the study from design, the study from the complexity of life. And this is a really fun one to kind of drip in when you're talking to your kids because it, it really does revolve in a lot of ways around just how special and unique they are. And when you start talking anytime about the way that God made the universe and the way that he designed it and uniquely structured it to not just make for life in its simplest forms, but make for life complex life for sentient beings like us that now we're able to probe the limits of the universe and to ask big questions about the universe. And you start to think about how big things are in our universe and how small, small things are in our universe now to the 12th and 13th and 14th dimension of subatomic particles, it gets mind-blowing. And what I find myself doing in any time I start jumping back into the study of design and the way that God designed everything is it brings me to a position of worship. I'm reminded that my position as dad is not just to be a worshiper, but also for my family to be a worship leader with them. And I really do think that this argument has the power to usher us into a position of worship with our families. And so we'll kind of jump into it as another argument for God's existence. And and once again, I know that some of you, this is just not really your cup of tea, the idea of jumping in and talking about these things, and you don't need it, you don't require it. I do think there's a biblical principle here, again, that we pull out of First Peter, where the scriptures tell us to make sure that we have, an, we have a reasonable answer. That's where we get the word apologetics from. Always be prepared to give an answer or a reason or a defense for anyone who asks you what the hope is that lies within you. Many people are going to be pursued or persuaded by the loving kindness of God, and that's going to be it. Some of them, as the New Testament talks about, it's going to be the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony will be sufficient for them. And But there are people whose hang-ups when it comes to believing in Jesus is going to be intellectual. They don't get how it could happen, and, and I'm speaking in the first person here because this is this is my hang-up, and I know that if my kids are anything like me, this will probably be their hang-up, and I want to have an answer that goes beyond God wants us to have blind faith because Romans 1 makes it clear God perceives that his creation screams of his glory. Job chapter 38 and following makes that really clear. Yeah, Romans 1 it says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that man is without excuse. So if you ask God, God doesn't think, I, my bet would be based on that text, that if you said, man, I wish God made things more clear, I think God would say, I couldn't have made them more clear. And so that's why I think there is a right field of study for the theologian, for the God worshiper, for the follower of Jesus 
to look at these things and to wonder at them and to be in awe of God's creation. And so I hope that this conversation, while it will have its moments of nerding out and geeking out, would lead you to a position of worship because that's where it's led me even in the study of getting here. And so here's how the argument goes in its simplest form. The universe appears to be finely tuned. And when we say finely tuned, we mean that there's complexity and and kind of like objective complexity. Objective meaning really whoever you ask. No one really looks at the way that the cell works and the membranes and the irreducible complexity of the eye and of flagella and mitochondria and and the, the way that the world works out. And the planet that we live on earth is tilted at 23.5 degrees on its axis. And if it was 23.7 degrees or 23.3 degrees, the, the moon and the tides and everything would be thrown off so that complex life would be almost irredeemable. And that the sun is a certain distance away and the moon is a certain distance away. And if it was any further or any closer, we wouldn't have the ability to maintain temperatures necessary to sustain human life. And that we've got our star is a G2 red dwarf star. Our sun is a G2 red dwarf star. If it was a number of other possible stars that it could be, there'd be no life on planet Earth. That we've Jupiter is this massive planet that really acts as a cosmic vacuum in our solar system. And it sucks up all this debris that if it weren't there, it would, we would constantly be being hailed by debris from the universe being hurled through at us and it would make life unsustainable on our planet. And so there's all these things on a macro scale. And then there's things on a micro scale, the way that the, the eye works and the iris and the way that it takes in light and flips the image upside down and the brain perceives color and all those things. And, and from the, yeah, from the iris to, the way that the curvature of the eye works and and everything works in perfect tandem for us to be able to see. And the number of neurons and neuropathways in your brain that work for you to perceive the English language that I'm speaking right now and, and the way that your synapses in your brain fire and, and your memories that are pulled. You know, when I say, what did you have for dinner last night? Your brain immediately jumps in and it sees pictures inside of it and it tries to bring to bear the thoughts that you had and There's more electrical connections in your brain than the county of Los Angeles and the way that you're put together and the atoms and the DNA and and that our DNA, as Francis Collins wrote, he's actually a a believer in in theism, and he was kind of the first one to take the the genetic code and and kind of fulfill everything that it had promised. And, And when he finished it, he wrote a book called The Language of God in which he talks about the way that it seems like God just wrote a book in each of our cells to make more of us. And he said, but it doesn't have the appearance of accident. It, ha- it looks like a book and a complicated book and a multiple volume encyclopedia format. It's just not an accident. There is so much to it that requires an explanation. And this design, this fine tuning is written all over our universe. And, and now physicists and astrophysicists and biologists and cosmologists combined really have agreed that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of what we call anthropic coincidences. That means there are these knobs, think of a knob, and a knob is set to one part in hundreds of billions of possible parts, okay? So you've got a knob, maybe you've got a knob for like an amp for a guitar at your house, or maybe you've got a knob for your stove in your kitchen, and your stove might have eight different settings on it. You know, I don't really know how your stove works, but 
Imagine a knob, but it doesn't have eight settings. It has hundreds of millions of possible settings. And if it was, if on that one hundreds of hundreds of millions of possible settings, it's set to this one potential spot where life in the universe is possible. And with just that one knob, if you put it one degree to the left or one degree to the right, there'd be no life in our universe, no life on planet Earth. But there's not one of these knobs. There are hundreds of these knobs. And depending on which astrophysicist you, you talk to, I was reading a guy named Hugh Ross who says right now they postulate as many as 220 different anthropic coincidences. That's kind of said tongue-in-cheek. But it's these knobs. So th- imagine not just one of those knobs, but hundreds of those knobs that are set so precisely that if one of them were off, there'd be no life anywhere in our universe. And now when you start taking those factors into consideration, you start looking at those different knobs, the probability that not just one of those is, but that two of them beside each other are both set to that value. That is one in hundreds of millions or hundreds of billions, or in some cases, so astronomically high that I couldn't even explain it to you. There is no conceivable way to help us understand how some of these values and some of these fine-tuning values are set in our universe to to have life be anywhere in it. I want to give you a little bit of a picture of, of what the argument is before we jump into some of those details and just sit back in the odd wonder of who God is. The argument sounds like this. These are our premises and then our conclusion should follow rightly from the premises and it does. The first premise is this. Number one, the fine-tuning of the universe, which is what I was just talking about, the values and the presets that are in place so perfectly that allow for life in our universe or allow our universe to exist at all and not just crash into a cosmic black hole or after the original expansion of the universe that everything should have been annihilated within one picosecond of the expansion, but that we still have it today. And then we have complex biological life The fine-tuning of the universe, argument number one, or premise number one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, random chance, or design. So simple enough. The first premise is this, the fine-tuning that we see, it's there's three possible suitors that can explain the fine-tuning. So the premises are this, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Number two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Number three, therefore, it is due to design. So it's an argument for intelligent design. Now, we're not jumping into, that means Jesus raised back from the dead. That means the Bible is absolutely true. This is an argument for theism, or more appropriately, that there is a God out there, not that the God of the Bible is the God that ought to be worshipped. There's a lot of other arguments you can make for that. And maybe at another time, I'll jump into some of those things to validate the truth of the Bible or the historicity of Jesus or the fulfillment of prophecies or the congruency of the Old and New Testaments or the evidence of the resurrection. These are all things that you can just kind of nerd out on and there's uh, good arguments for all of them. But right now our argument is simple. Is there a God? The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. It is not due to physical necessity or chance. Therefore, it is due to design. So the way that the atheist or the way that the skeptic is going to undo this argument line is to make a case for either physical necessity or chance to nullify design, or to postulate some other reason that the fine-tuning of the universe exists outside of physical necessity, chance, and design. I believe that we can rightly say plausibly that it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Let's take physical necessity first of all. Physical necessity says that all those knobs are set so perfectly because those knobs don't really exist. 
You see, the power of gravity is always the way that it's perfectly set. So there's no such thing as gravity except for that value, which means that the values and what they're trying to fulfill are not independent of one another. So for example, if we talked about the distance between the sun and planet earth, you could look at that and you could say the distance between the sun and planet earth. Now this is not a great example, but it's just trying to jump into the mindset is a certain number of miles away. But it has to be that many miles away because that's the way that universe has come. That's just the way that it has to be. And, and gravity is set to that way because that's the way that all gravity has to be set. And the way that we see our universe, it's not really designed. It's not really fanciful. It's not really finely tuned. It's that all of these precepts and constants have to be set the way that they are. And so therefore, it's not really finely tuned. It's a matter of necessity. They have to be that way. Gravity is not finely tuned. It's that all gravity must be set the way that it's set. Well, we can easily imagine a universe in which gravity is a little stronger or where gravity is a little weaker, the strong nuclear force and a low entropy universe and every one of those constants, they're not their value by necessity. So that means that their values are independent of what they're trying to fulfill. That's a lot of nerd talk. But basically, the answer is that because we know that those values are independent of what they're fulfilling, then physical necessity isn't a real candidate here. So if we've got three possible ones, fine-tuning is physical necessity, chance, or design, we know that it's not physical necessity because we can easily understand and assume and postulate a universe where these values were different and they were changed. So they don't have to be the way that they are. They could be a lot of other things. So it is finely tuned. It's not just a matter of necessity. So our second option to get rid of the God hypothesis would be as if it were due to chance. And this is kind of fun because this is where you get to nerd out a little bit. And maybe you already thought we were nerding out. (laughs) It's just going to get nerdier, but you're going to love it. Or maybe you're going to hate it. I have no promises here. But here's where you get to jump into these numbers that just kind of make you go weak in the knees. I'll start with this. As you start to read some of these books and you start to understand some of these values and, and the way that things are set, it brings you to a position of worship like I was talking about before. So we have these hundreds, depending on who you're talking to, at least dozens, because some people don't differentiate between strong and weak nuclear forces, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But let's jump in and first understand the difference between seconds, like million, billions, and trillions, because we're going to be using a lot of big numbers, okay? So just sit back and enjoy the craziness of this. One second is equal to one second. Nothing complicated there. A million seconds is 12 days. So a million's a lot, right? A million seconds is, is 12 days. But I think sometimes we forget how big a billion is compared to a million. A second is a second. A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 30 years. A trillion seconds is 30,000 years. That is bananas, A trillion seconds is 30,000 years. That just goes to show when you start doing big number probability, you start understanding some of these ideas. And when we start saying, here's how rare this is, if we don't get a good picture of how astronomical and how big these improbabilities are, we might not come to appreciate how crazy, creative, intelligent, and perfect our God is at creating and designing it is, it is estimated that in our universe, there's probably 10 to the 22nd planets. 
So some people go, well, we should expect life on a variety of planets, and we should expect life in other places in the universe, because there are 10 to the 22nd planets. That's a lot of planets, man. There are only 10 to the 80th atoms in the universe. Okay, so here's what an atom is. Picture an orange. An atom is proportional to an orange, what an orange is to planet Earth. So proportionally speaking, an atom is alike proportionally to an orange, what an orange is to planet Earth. So atoms are small. That's the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) Atoms are ridiculously small. So if you just look at a piece of sand or you, you, you think of a, a cell phone inside of that are hundreds of millions, if not billions of atoms, even in something as small as that. And there's only 10 to, I mean, we're talking about like the density of stars out in the middle of the Horsehead nebula way out there on the, the outer rims of our solar system and then stretching on to our whole universe. There are only 10 to the 80th atoms in our whole universe. 10 to the 80th. That's how many atoms there are in every single one of those stars, density-wise, on our sun itself. If you take every single bit of the density of all those things, there's only 10 to the 80th atoms in our universe. Now listen to this. At the moment after the universe started expanding... There was an expansion rate, a cosmological constant, if you will. And that rate was so perfectly fine-tuned that if it was off by one part in 10 to the 120th power, there'd be no life anywhere in our universe. We would have either collapsed in on ourselves instantly as soon as the expansion started, or we would have been flying apart too fast for anything really meaningful to ever stick together. So when you start thinking about probabilities, that means that the odds of just this one anthropic principle, the expansion rate of the universe, just this one thing necessary for life in our universe, just that one thing. If there's 10 to the 80th atoms in our universe, if you painted one atom in our whole universe red, and I blindfolded you and gave you a spaceship that could travel at the speed of light. Now, granted, our universe is 93 billion light years across. So if you got in a rocket ship that could go the speed of light and you started at one side of our universe, it would take you 93 billion years traveling at the speed of light to get from one side of our universe to the other side of our universe. But let's say I put you in that rocket and you had all the time in the universe to travel across the entire cosmos, but you're blindfolded. And then at some point in the cosmos, you just had to stop your little spaceship without being able to look, you're still blindfolded, and you picked a random set of planets or a random star or a random something somewhere, and you basically threw a dart at that, at that planet. And when you got to that planet, that was the one that you chose. Now you go and you step on the surface of the planet. You're still blindfolded with all, the, with all this stuff, and you've got to then decide which atom on this planet are you going to choose? Now, you've already made a guess because there's one in 10 to the 22nd planets in our universe. So you've already made an infinitesimal odds of you even choosing the right planet that it's on. And now that you get on the planet, now you've got all the atoms on that planet and one of them is red. And you've got to find it with a pin that is so precise that it only picks out one atom and not two atoms. And you have to blindfolded pick one of those And if you pick that one, then you've hit a statistic of one in 10 to the 80th power. That's nuts. But the expansion rate at the beginning of the universe is 
incomparably greater than that. You see how rare that would be and how impossible it would be? And it's not even a number worth thinking about. It's mathematically impossible that you would even find that one red atom. And that's only 1 in 10 to the 80th power. We're talking about 1 in 10 to the 120th power. And that factor, that 1 in 10 to the 120th power, is only one of dozens, if not hundreds, of these knobs that is set so precisely that when you start to do the math and you get two of those knobs together to understand the probability, you have to multiply those things together. So you have to take something that is so perfectly set, like the force of gravity. The force of gravity is set to a number that is 1 in 10 to the 60th power. And if it was off, here's the way the math works out. If you stretched a ruler across the known universe, 93 billion light years across, and it was an inch ruler, so it was set every inch for 93 billion light years, and the force of gravity was set as one inch on that ruler, somewhere in the 93 billion light year long ruler, the force of gravity was so perfectly set as to be one inch on that ruler. If you move that inch marker one inch to the left, or you move the value of the force of gravity one inch to the left or one inch to the right, there would be no complex life anywhere in our universe. That's how finely tuned the force of gravity is. One in 10 to the 60th power, that if it was off by one inch in either direction, there'd be no complex life anywhere in our universe. There is, because you're complex life. I am complex life, and we see it everywhere. So just think about those two values. 1 in 10 to the 120th power, the expansion rate needs to be there for there to even be gravity in the first place for us to have an observable universe. And then the force of gravity on that universe must be set to 1 in 10 to the 60th power, which means in order for both of those things to happen, by chance, you have to multiply 1 in 10 to the 120th by 1 in 10 to the 60th power. And that would still only be two factors in a list of dozens, if not hundreds, of values that are so perfectly set for us to have the universe that we observe. When you start jumping into it, you just start thinking, what in the world? And that's not even the most astronomical of these numbers. There's an astrophysicist named Roger Penrose, and he calculated, he wrote an, an article, The Emperor's New Mind, sorry, a book called The Emperor's New Mind. And he started stipulating, as an astrophysicist, the odds that our universe is as orderly as it is in our galactic neighborhood as planet Earth. And he said, for a low entropy state of the universe, which is, this is it's pretty much to say the same thing, the odds of us living in a low entropy state, there's a lot of other ways that the universe could be. The odds that we live in the low entropy state that we have is one in 10 to the 10th power raised to the 123rd power. 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power to achieve, by chance, a low entropy state of the universe. Again, for us to have the universe that we observe, we must take that number, 1 in 10 to the 10th to the 123rd, we must multiply it by the force of gravity, 1 in 10 to the 60th, and multiply that by the cosmological constant, 1 in 10 to the 120th power. So at some point, you understand that no one really takes the idea of chance seriously. And I'm not talking about Christians don't take it. I'm talking about the scientific community doesn't take the chance hypothesis seriously. I'm really showing these numbers just to bring you to a position of worship about who our God is, but this is not really to be taken seriously. There's not a lot of renowned astrophysicists, atheists or not, that you take the idea 
of this all being by chance, they're not really going to take you seriously because that's not it. To get away from this, what they've done instead is to say, perhaps there is an ensemble of universes and there's like this bubbling multiverse of universes and ours is just one of a whole bunch of other universes where life permitting circumstances in the other ones might be simpler. And then perhaps in one of those other universes, someone grabbed life and brought life from that universe to our universe called panspermia, and they transferred life into our universe. So that you see what's happening? It almost feels like in some cases, anything to avoid the God hypothesis. But when you start looking at these numbers, let me just tell you what, I'll just walk with you some through some of these people. This is Sir Fred Hoyle. He wrote this. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seems to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. So he looks at these numbers and he comes to the same conclusion. I'm telling you, even you watch modern debates and watch people who are in the field of study. No one really looks at these numbers and says, well, we just got really lucky. It's a little bit laughable. So there are other, there's, again, quantum loop models, and there's M theory, and there's string, there's, there's string, there's all these other theories that go out there, n- none of which are anything other than postulations to avoid the God hypothesis. They don't have any backing for them other than inference. And even those universes would still have to have a beginning that we saw from cosmology in the Vlenkin proof the other day. But that's neither here nor there. A couple more of these quotes before we wrap up. Stephen Hawking, renowned astrophysicist, obviously, one of the most brilliant men who's ever lived, an atheist. So I'm, I'm not trying to presume here that he is a theist or anything else like that. I'm trying to do, give him his due credit. But here's his own quote. If one considers the possible constants and laws that could have emerged, so he's, he, this is the idea of physical necessity. He's saying it didn't have to be this way. It could have been a lot of different things. Okay, so he's canceling out physical necessity. If one considers the possible constants and laws that could have emerged, the odds against the universe that has produced life like ours are immense. I think there are clearly religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origins of the universe. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Again, he'll go on to say, but I don't, I don't think it's that. I, I think we see the idea of design or the idea of complexity, and we've, we want to worship something. We want to think about God, but we know philosophically that it's all explained by naturalism which doesn't really do much to cancel out the hypothesis. It really just says we have an a priori commitment that we are not going to go down the route of, of supernaturalism. David Deutsch, a theoretical physicist from Oxford, states this, if anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features the universe has, he is hiding his head in the sand. The special features are surprising and unlikely. Paul Davies is a physicist, recipient of the Templeton Prize, the Kevin Medal from the UK Institute of Physics, and the Michael Faraday Prize, and here's what he wrote. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has finely tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Avishai Dekel is a famous atheistic astronomer, but he writes this. This type of universe requires a degree of fine-tuning in the initial conditions that is an apparent conflict with our common scientific wisdom. The cosmic coincidence problem is nothing short of disturbing. 
I mean, at the end of the day, our heart for any of these things and for the arguments for God's existence is not that we would win a debate. It's not that someone would be proven wrong. It is instead twofold. It is for those who struggle with the truth of who God is to be able to brought into, it's, it's kind of clearing the pathway for those who think like that to say there, it's a very reasonable thing to take the leap of faith into Christianity because we run a ramp of reason before we get there. And none of these things, you don't look at any of these things and go, therefore, it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have now categorical proof that God exists. And in the future, we might find some way of getting around this conclusion through science that makes this whole argument moot. But the science as it stands right now puts us squarely in the question of how do we see the universe that we see without a transcendent creator, without a transcendent mind that is both brilliant intelligible and personal. When I say personal, I mean he has the accidents or the characteristics of personhood, makes decisions, thinks of things, is creative. And as we do that, I I hope for you as a listener that it A, strengthens your faith, it B, puts us in a position of worship to our God, it C, maybe equips us, maybe we're not going to remember these numbers and maybe we don't need to. Maybe it just puts us in a position where we know that there are answers for it. And that some of the most brilliant men I've ever heard, brilliant women I've ever listened to are atheists. But they are perfectly complemented by the brilliant men and women that I've listened to that believe firmly, not just in the fact that God exists, but the truth and veracity of scripture and the historicity of Jesus and the resurrection and the empty tomb and I think the notion that I grew up with is that this discussion was sealed. The argument was over, that there was the brilliant science folk on one side and the mystical backtown marry your cousin group on the other side that still believed in God. And the more you dive into it, the more you go, wow, not only is there a phenomenally intelligible case to be made for theism— But I would postulate that in the marketplace of ideas right now, it's the best idea out there. If you don't have the a priori decision, if you don't decide ahead of time that there is no God or that supernaturalism is impossible, then I think kind of what these guys are saying as they're looking at these numbers is they're all kind of saying the same thing without saying the same thing, which is, I love how Deckel puts it, the cosmic coincidence problem is nothing short of disturbing, but really it's disturbing for who? It's not disturbing for a theist. It's not disturbing for someone who's put their trust in God. It's comforting. It's disturbing for someone who wants to get rid of the God hypothesis for whatever reason. And so if you're listening to this, I just hope that it, again, I'm super willing to be proven wrong, I think, and I hope as Christians, we're always open-minded to the fact that the science can change and new discoveries can happen. But I'm pretty firmly convinced at this point that when it comes to the design of the universe, the best possible explanation is that we serve a phenomenally complex, brilliant, loving, personal, creative, transcendent, amazing God.